0: The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10:30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Glad that you're here, whether you're here in person or watching online. Uh, we are concluding a series called The One. And we've been looking at this passage in Colossians chapter 1 uh, that you just heard read in all those different languages, so beautifully read, and just a powerful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like, of people from different places and languages who are all one family. So we're going to be finishing up our time in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 20. So I'd invite you to go ahead and open your Bible there, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Uh, If you uh, have a Bible app, feel free to tap your way over there as well. Uh, We're going to spend some time just focusing in on these few words sitting under the authority and the weight of them. And as you turn there in your Bible, I want to share with you a conversation I recently had with a young man. Uh, from our church, who is now in school uh, at a different place. He's uh, studying. He's doing his uh, bachelor's degree elsewhere. And I remember having a conversation with this young man, and he was telling me about a class that he's enrolled in called, What is the Good Life? And I remember hearing that name for a college class, and it turns out it's actually a requirement for all freshmen to take this class called, What is the Good Life? And uh, it's, it's an interesting class. Uh, but anyways, I, it got me thinking, what are some other kind of silly ridiculous college courses that you can take. And so if you or your child is brilliant and gifted enough to get into MIT, one of the most prestigious universities here in our country, you can spend tens of thousands of dollars going to a course called Uh, Lego robotics, okay? So you can do Lego robotics and get into debt for it, okay? You could also uh, do a class, if you go to Georgetown University in right near our nation's capital, you can enroll in a class called Philosophy and Star Trek, okay? So the two nerdiest things we could think of, combine them in one, there you go. Uh, Take that class, you know, it's true. Uh, And then if you go to Montclair State University, In New Jersey, you can take a class. This is my personal favorite. It really speaks to the need of this generation, what they really need to learn. There's a class called How to Watch Television. And uh, no textbook for this class, just a Netflix subscription required. Maybe Disney Plus. Uh, I just made that up. But no, anyways, it's a class and it teaches them because we all know that's the one thing they need desperately, right? To learn how to watch television. Of uh, all these different classes I want you to think of the first class I mentioned the question what is the good life now it's actually a philosophy class and it's intended to bring these young people through some of the deeper questions of life to start asking the question at a very important season in the college years what does the good life look like how do you know when you've arrived there Uh, What does the destination look like where you say, wow, my life right now is full of meaning, purpose, joy. I mean, I've got it. I'm at the good life. If you were to describe that place, what does it look like? And so this course explores that question and comes at it from all different philosophies and religious backgrounds. And here's what I'd say to you, whether you realize it or not, you have a working definition to the answer of what is the good life. You right now are operating under an answer to the question, what is the good life? And although you may not have a stated answer to that question, you do have an answer to it, at least subconsciously. And maybe if I was to stalk you for a week and watch what you got stressed out about or watch what you spent all your time on or spent your money on or the things you've been planning and dreaming and aiming towards, I could probably give you a good definition for what you would say the good life is. And I want you to think about this question, what is the good life, because Colossians is really this powerful letter, this letter we've been studying, where there's this situation happening in the city that's receiving this letter, where there's a group of teachers, these prominent teachers, who have started circulating a philosophy. They've started circulating a teaching, an instruction on the good life, and they've said something about what the good life is, what joy and purpose, true spiritual fullness, what this looks like, and Paul, the author, is so deeply concerned about what this teaching is, he writes this letter to warn the Christians there in Colossae not to believe the lies of this teaching. So he writes this letter, and you might think, wow, man, to to do this, to get That burdened, over. what does this teaching say? Maybe they're just like denying Jesus outright, saying that Jesus is a nobody, that he's unimportant, but that's not what they said. The false teaching in Colossae that Paul was deeply concerned about was that there was a group of teachers who said something like this. They said, hey, if you want true spiritual fullness, if you want true purpose, true meaning, if you want to get on our level and experience the good life, then you need Jesus plus this other set of views, practices, and beliefs as well. So if you want the good life, Jesus is great. You should have Jesus, but don't miss the elites, those of us who really have this thing called life nailed down. We also have this other set of views on top of it. And Paul writes this letter deeply concerned. It's almost you can sense as if Paul is just writing with this, this desire and passion to make sure that there is no one in their midst who's receiving this letter, who every single week is gathering with this church in Colossae. Every week is attending a gathering like this where we sing and we pray and t- we teach from God's word. He writes with a concern because there may be some in their midst who come week after week, day after day, and they're believing a lie they're church attenders, but they're not Christians. And then he writes also with this concern for those who are followers of Jesus, those who are Christians that are tempted by this other way of life that's being thrown down on them and is getting influence and he's trying to caution them against it. And so Colossians, the message of this letter is essentially Jesus is the good life. Jesus is the one it's not Jesus plus some stuff it's all Jesus he's the one it's all about him it's always been about him it'll always be about him it's just Jesus and so here in Colossians 1 I just I just have this sense that there are some of us in this room who can really relate to what was happening when this letter was originally authored That it's possible to be in the midst of the gathered church, it's possible to come week after week for this to be your hundredth time, thousandth time in church, and to be be believing a lie, and to not know what it means to be reconciled to God, to confuse religious practices and a set of views with relationship with Almighty God. And so what I want to do in our time together is look at these two verses at the end of this powerful passage, verses 19 through 20. And we're going to be challenged in three particular ways that we can tend to have this small view of Jesus. So look with me, Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 20, it speaks of Jesus, the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, that he's reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, there's this phenomenon that I would say everybody in this room has experienced where uh, you stand at a distance and see something And uh, you have this appearance of what size it is. You have this sense of how big it is. But then when you get up close to it, say it's a mountain or a skyscraper, and you stand you get real close up to it and you start to see it as it is face to face. And you realize, well, I I underestimated how big this thing is. Where its apparent sight, when we're back here and from a distance, is smaller than its actual realistic size, And Colossians 1, what it does for us is in some ways it brings us up close to the person of Jesus and will not allow us to settle for a small view of who Jesus is to retreat back into our small conceptions of who Jesus is. It brings us up close and personal so we can see face to face his majesty, his grandeur, his power, his authority. And so with that in mind, I want to show us three ways in which our view of Jesus can be distorted. Can be diminished. And the first one is this. Paul, essentially, he calls us out on these. He calls us out, number one, on our tame view of Jesus' authority. If you're taking notes, write that down. Our tame view of Jesus' authority. It says in verse 19, I'll read it again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. We've been talking about this this whole series. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the creator he made all things. He created all things and he made all things for himself. So he's the beginning of all things and he's the end of all things. Everything was made for him. We've talked in previous weeks about not, how, not only how Jesus made all things and everything is made for him, but Jesus is actively sustaining all things. So that means your heart right now is beating. My heart is beating because Jesus is sustaining us. That means that there's a distant star in some faraway galaxy in creation that no telescope has ever been powerful enough to see. That there's a star that is currently burning continually because Jesus is actively sustaining that star. So who is Jesus? We're brought up close and personal to see in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And sometimes we can retreat into this tame view of who Jesus is, this small view of, his, of who Jesus is, and miss out on the reality. No, he is God in the flesh. He's God. We're not. So I remember this past Christmas going to visit family in Memphis, and uh, I remember going and visiting, had this great time, and on my wife's side of the family, uh, there are so many children. it's, It's incredible, and most of them under the age of five, and we decided to go to the zoo one day, so we go to the zoo, and we come, and it's 12 children and 12 adults, okay? So everybody's got, you know, man coverage, okay? So we're trying to keep things on lock, make sure no children get lost. It, it was this fun time. But right when you get to the Memphis Zoo, something that's incredible, I wish all zoos were designed like, designed like this, you walk in, and right when you walk in is the lion exhibit. I mean, right there when you walk in, you don't need to go to the back, you know, just right there are the lions, and um, I, I gather around there, and I see it, and there's this male lion, this huge mane, and two female lions, and they're just laying down, just like kind of delicately, but they're awake. And I remember seeing these lions, and just being in awe of them, and then the male lion did something like so unexpected. The male lion just started licking his paw, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I mean, this is adorable!" Like, Never mind the fact that I'm really close to this lion, right? Like, this, is, this is so beautiful. And so he's licking his paw. And then the next thing that happens, is amazing. The lion gets up from where he's perched, walks over to one of the female lions. I'm assuming it's his woman. I don't know, but... He goes and he starts like rubbing his mane on her. And I'm like, this is Nala and Simba right now. They're about to start tossing in the leaves and it's beautiful, right? And so, so they're, like, they're like having this necking moment, okay, where they're, they're having this sweet moment. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like, look, they're right there. They're not sleeping like every other zoo. This is great. And so then we, it's time to leave the lions because you can't stay at the lions all day. So we start leaving. I walk away just like, wow, that was incredible. And I'm maybe 20 yards away from these lions. My back turned to them. And then something happens that stops me dead in my tracks. I hear the most guttural, internal organ-shaking sound I have ever heard in my entire life. And it's hard to describe because it wasn't like loud, like ear-piercing loud. It was such a low, thunderous tone that although it was loud and I could tell the whole park could hear it, it wasn't hurting my ears, it was just making me shake. And I turn around and here's this lion, roaring, but like it's not even trying. I mean, its mouth is just barely open. It's like yawning. And everybody in the park stops and like goes, whoa, and, and freaks out, sees this lion, and quickly... I, I just went on this emotional roller coaster where I'm like, oh, cute kitties. This Lion King, Nala Simba's beautiful. Can you feel? I'm like, I'm ready. And then I walk away and I hear this thunder and I'm like, whoa. And very quickly, I'm alerted to the fact this is, this is a creature that can mess me up. Like that roar. Did you know lions roar? You could hear them from five miles away. Like, they'll mess you up. You can't tame a lion. See, it's tempting at times for us to view Jesus as just this good teacher who had some good things to say and had some advice. To see Jesus as someone, this, this sage who is just full of wisdom and can help you have a better life, kind of like this life coach on the sidelines saying, hey, try this, work, work on this. And you know, you as the person on the field who's playing, you're like, all right, coach, I'll I'll take that advice, or no, I don't think that's best, I'll, I'll do this. When Jesus is a lion that can't be tamed, and we can have this tame view of his authority where we reduce Jesus thinking he's someone that we can say, all right, Jesus, you stay there, I've got this over here. I'm talking to those of us who say we follow Jesus. I'm talking to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because if we call ourselves Christians, then we submit to the authority of the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so, my question for each of us, including myself, is are we submitting to the authority of Jesus? Are we submitting to his authority? Are we submitting to the authority of the Lion of Judah? Who is over all and made all and is sustaining all? Are we submitting? So, are you, for example, are you submitting to Jesus in the area of your integrity? Or are there things that work that you're willing to cheat? You're willing to lie? Bend the truth. Because everybody else does it to get ahead. But you don't understand, everybody else has to do this or else they won't get ahead. Are you bending the truth at home? Are you saying to Jesus, hey Jesus, I, I, I'll follow you, uh, I, I'm with you, I'm so thankful for what you've done in my life, I believe in you, but as far as how I do my work, I've got this over here, you stay, you sit, and be there, I've got this over here. Maybe for you it's not your integrity, perhaps it's in the area of sexual purity. That part of us that is so sensitive and delicate And maybe for you, integrity, you're you're an honest person. You're someone who has that. But if you're honest, you're the area where you say, I'm going to do with my body what I want. Have you said to the lion, Christian, Jesus, you stay over there. I'm going to do what I want over here. Have we decided that we know best over God? Have we submitted to the authority of Jesus in the area of our finances? Another delicate area, sensitive area where people get up in arms and envious about or don't want to talk about it, feel like someone's out there. Are you submitting to Jesus in your finances? Or or are the finances in your life an area where you say, hey, Jesus, it's cool. I'm all about your forgiveness. I'll go to church. I'll read your word. I'll pray. But as far as how I spend my money, that's me. You stay over there sit. Do we realize what we do? When we go to the lion, and we try and tame the lion. See, Jesus, he's in authority. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And so let me just say this. If your version of Christianity, if your version of Christianity is living your life like every other person in North America in 2020, Except you go to church on Sundays. If your version of Christianity is, I look the same, talk the same, do the same things, I'm chasing after the same things as everybody else, except I go to church one time a week, then let me just lovingly say this to you. Your version of Christianity is not Christianity. It may be taking Jesus plus some things to try and find the good life, but it is not the message of Jesus, which is, I am enough. I can satisfy what you're thirsting for. And here's the beautiful thing. The more you know Jesus, as you grow in your knowledge of him, the more you want to surrender to him. That the more that you know who he is and all that, all that he has to offer you, the more you say, yes, willingly, Jesus, I want you to reign in this area of my life that I'm struggling in. I want you to be Lord over this area of my life that I've been holding on to. Jesus, yes, please, I want you, I want more of you in my life. It's like C.S. Lewis said in his Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, the lion, the representation of Jesus. Jesus, he's, he's not safe, he's not tame, but he's good. But he's wise and he loves you and he knows what's best for you and so you trusting in his authority over those areas of your life is delight when we know who he is. And so Paul presents to us Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his fullness. And so here's the second reason for us to repent, the second reason for our diminished view. Here's number two, our shallow view of Jesus' mission. We're called out on our shallow view of Jesus' mission. Look at verse 20, the very first part of it. Verse 20, he says this, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, This is the mission of Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. We have a shallow view of the mission of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, he's writing originally in Greek, and he's writing to these people in the city, Colossae, and he's thinking of the mission of Jesus, what Jesus has come to do, what he's all about, and he's writing and he's trying to communicate in words the scope of what Jesus is all about, the scope of what he intends to do in all of creation— And what's interesting is the word that Paul uses here to reconcile, this is the first word, this is the first time this word appears in our understanding, in our knowledge, in all of history. So no one else before Paul has used this word in Greek that he uses to describe reconciliation. So some commentators say and argue it seems as if Paul was setting out to try and figure out what kind of reconciliation Jesus is bringing, the thoroughness of it, the fullness of it, and there is no word that's equivalent for what he intends to do. So Paul makes a word up and he takes the regular word for reconciliation and he puts a prefix on that word. It's like he's saying he ultra reconciles, over the top reconciles. He takes what was most broken, most divided, most Uh, most undone, and he makes it whole. He restores it. He brings it back to health and vibrance and flourishing. This is what Jesus does, to reconcile to himself all things, that which is broken and divided and hurt, made whole and new and good. Jesus, his mission is to reconcile to himself all things. I think of times in my life where I've had friendships, and in the context of friendship, where feelings were hurt. And so, uh, there have been times where I've had friends where the situation becomes such that we don't get on speaking terms. And it, it devolves into this place where it's like, if I'm in the same room with that person, it's like, you don't want to make eye contact. I'm sure none of you have ever been there, right? None of you, right? It's like one of those situations where you walk into a room, you see them, you know they're there, you pray, dear God, I hope they did not see me. And... Uh, that worst moment, like the worst thing that could happen, at least in our minds at the time, is eye contact. Like if you make eye contact, you've got one or two decisions. You either do the move or you just keep looking up, pretending as though you were just curious at the roof. Like you're just observing the roof. You just keep your gaze going up or you just, you just gotta, you just gotta talk. I mean, but reconciliation starts in this situation. This is the condition of every human heart apart from Christ. That we're in this place where our relationship to God is such that we're separated and we want nothing to do with Him. And we see when His authority starts to creep over our life, we we keep looking the other way and pretend as if we don't see Him. Because we want to run our lives, we want to keep control, we want to be our own God. And the starting point that every single person begins on is we are separated from God, enemies of God, wanting nothing to do with him in our lives, thinking we can run our lives better than he can. And it's in that context that Jesus initiates reconciliation with us. He comes, and unlike any human relationship where reconciliation often looks like both individuals are saying, hey, I'm sorry for hurting you in this way, I'm sorry for how I wronged you this way. In this case, Jesus has done no wrong. We're the ones who've done all the wrong. And yet Jesus is the one who made the first move. And he comes to reconcile to himself broken and flawed people to bring us back into relationship with God. This is the mission of Jesus. Reconciliation. And sometimes we can have this shallow view of the mission of Jesus and reduce the message of Jesus to like, hey, you know, I, I don't want to go to hell and it's heaven sounds kind of fun, so yeah, I'll believe in Jesus. I'll, I'll follow Jesus. When what's being offered to you is reconciliation with your creator, the one you are made for. And yes, that culminates in heaven, but don't miss it. It starts right now. Like there's something good for you right now. His presence is available to you right now. Walking with God is possible right now and that's the good life. And he offers this to you, this reconciliation. And we have this shallow, small view of what this looks like. And beyond that, reconciliation, I want you to note, it implies relationship. Jesus, he says, he's going to reconcile to himself all things. This implies that we have relationship with God. And there may be some of us who are here, maybe much like the individuals in Colossae, who maybe church attendance is a part of your life. Like, you gather week by week, maybe at this church or at other churches. But if you're honest, you don't have a relationship with God. You haven't been reconciled to God. You don't know him. What I want to offer you today is to know God, to be reconciled to God. And I'm putting you on notice, because in about 10 minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be reconciled to God, to find the purpose for which you were made in relationship with Jesus. This is what he came to do. But he didn't just come to reconcile to himself people. It says he reconciles to himself all things. And it continues in verse 20. In this way, beyond that, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This just got cosmic, universal, in scope. Jesus, his mission is to reconcile to himself all of creation, so, yes, you and me and that star in some distant galaxy. Right now, heaven and earth, creation is a broken, fractured, ver- fractured version of itself. That our earth is full of calamities and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. That this world is broken. There are broken systems, there are broken people. All of creation falls under the lordship of Jesus, and Jesus intends to reconcile to himself all things, to renew and restore all things, to make all things that are broken whole and flourish. So that's why our vision as a church, our dream, our prayer, what we ask and beg God that we might see in our generation is that our city would be transformed by the power of the gospel, that's our cry. That's our desire. More than, just, more than we want a bigger church, we want to see our city changed. We care because why? Jesus is Lord of this church and of this city. And he is reconciling to himself all things. And we believe that. And so that's why we care about the education in our city. Why we as a church have said as far as the education in our city, it's going to be a priority for us. We want to engage in our education system. We want to be a representation of Christ in our education system so that justice and righteousness can reign in our city so that King Jesus can be glorified here in South Florida in the way children are educated. That's why we as a church have said, listen, there are many children, far too many. There's a crisis in South Florida of children who are in the foster care system. Of children who don't have a mom or a dad living with them. Who are in the system who are waiting for someone who will care for them. That's why we as a church have said, listen, we've got to do something. Because Jesus, he's Lord of our church and he's Lord over our city. He's Lord over these children. And we get to represent Jesus. And participate in reconciling all things. Taking what is broken and bringing healing That's why we as a church, we are committed to and convinced that the men and women who call this church their home, that Jesus has called us to release ourselves out into our city in our workplaces, to places where we don't just go to earn a paycheck, but we go to make an impact, where we see our workplaces as a place of mission, where we go and we represent King Jesus in the way that we work, in the way we have integrity in how we do business and the way we care for the people that report to us, and the way we lift up others and we serve our customers, we want to release people who reflect the kingdom of Jesus in their work. Why? Because Jesus, he is Lord of our church, and he is Lord of all things. And his mission for you is so much greater. And sometimes we get stuck in this shallow little view. We think, okay, Jesus, you know, I believe in you, and now I'm going to heaven. All right, now the rest of my life, I could just kind of do my thing. When no, 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 there is a calling on your life. There's a calling on your life. Paul in a different letter says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus has entrusted to us as his ambassadors, as the body of Christ on earth, this work of reconciliation, of joining Jesus in this mission. So his mission is far deeper. Your purpose is far greater than you can imagine. What you're doing in your workplace, far more purpose than you could ever dream of. There are moments and works that Jesus has prepared before time that you would walk in them and bring him glory in the way that you work. We have a shallow view of Jesus' mission. That brings us to our third. Third thing we're called out on in this passage is at the end of verse 20. It's our stingy view of Jesus' love. We can sometimes have a stingy view of Jesus' love. Look at verse 20, how it ends. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. What do I mean by peace? Well, this is what Jesus came to make. He came to make peace. Peace is everything flourishing. Peace is everything reconciled to God. Everything made right and made whole. Peace is the good life we're wanting. Whether you realize it or not, peace is what you're after. But our temptation is to look for, look for peace in all the wrong places. Stuffing ourselves with stuff. Thinking that if I just have enough of this, or if I'm this successful, or if I get this job, or if I can go on this vacation, or earn this much money, if I can just be at this level, then I'll finally experience peace. And it's a treadmill leading to nowhere. And Jesus says, I'll give you peace. He made peace How did he make peace? How did he provide for our enjoyment, our flourishing, our purpose? He made peace by the blood of his cross. You know the paradox there? How does peace come? Through the blood of the cross of Jesus. So it was the worst moment in human history that simultaneously became the best moment in human history. Jesus, the perfect one, the Son of God, was stripped of peace. He was mocked and beaten, though he's innocent, though he's perfect and righteous and good. He's stripped of his peace. He's beaten and battered, and he's nailed to a cross, and he's hanging there on the cross, taking all of the brokenness and shame, all that makes our world fractured and in need of reconciliation. Jesus takes on himself. And in that moment, would you see your Savior hanging on that cross? Calling out, looking at this group of onlookers who are mocking him. And he stays. And he gives his life willingly. And he breathes his life yelling, it is finished. And he dies for you. He dies for me. So that we might experience peace. How do we experience peace? Well, Jesus was robbed of all peace. So that we could, be, so that we could experience peace he was crushed. All the world's brokenness compounded, added up, thrown upon one, the perfect one, Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And Jesus, by taking that on himself in his death, now makes available to us the mercy and forgiveness and love of God. The compassion and the grace of God the righteousness of Jesus is available to us because of what he did. And three days later, he rises up from the grave triumphantly as this grand signal that death is no more. That sin had been paid for and that now salvation is available. Reconciliation with God is available to anyone who would believe in him. So how much did it, how much did Jesus love us? How much did it cost him to love us? Everything. 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 And sometimes we can diminish, we can diminish the love of Jesus and we could just say, you know, my sin, you know, the stuff I've got in my life, it's really not all that bad. I mean, I know some people who they've got real issues. I mean, sure, my stuff, I know it's wrong, but it's not as bad as this person or that person, my self centeredness. I mean, everybody's selfish. And what do we do? We excuse our sin. And by excusing or diminishing our sin, what do we do? We cheapen the love of Jesus. See, it was that very sin that we say it's not that big of a deal that made God die. that Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, gave everything. And sometimes we could have this stingy view of Jesus' love, this stingy view. When Jesus, so full of love, so full of grace, that he knows all of that about you, he knows all of the sin you've committed, everything you ever will commit, he knows that you will even diminish your sin and excuse your sin like I have, and yet he still came, he still loves, and he still offers reconciliation with him. Not based on your efforts, based on his work. Jesus offers this to you. So with this love so great, here's the question. How could we treat Jesus as if he's just one ingredient among many in our recipe for the good life? How could it be it's Jesus plus this and if I'm going to be really happy? How can it be? No, it's just Jesus. It's all him. He's enough. He's worthy. He's good. He's powerful and majestic. His authority is grand. There's no one like him. It's just Jesus. He loves you so much. His love can satisfy you. And we can be lost in our love for him. You say, Justin, why are you so passionate? Why are you talking so loud? It's because when you experience the grace of Jesus, when you know what it's like to be filling yourself with stuff, filling yourself with junk, thinking that this is what's going to finally satisfy me, that this is what's going to finally bring the good life, and you get down on your knees, and you just see again and again it's not working And then you remember, you were made by Jesus, for Jesus. And though we've wandered, he's still waiting patiently. He still loves. His shoulder is not turned away with condemnation. His arms are open. And he says, my son, my daughter, come home. I'm enough. I'm the one. This is what he offers you. He offers you everything. Everything all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. Why would we look for fullness anywhere else? It's all in him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close our time today in a moment by taking communion, the Lord's Supper, where we remember the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. We proclaim his sacrifice, that he did everything that needed to be done to make us right with God before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity in your seats there. Before you come forward or to the back, I want to give you the opportunity to have some time for repentance. These past three weeks, we've just felt burdened that the Lord is leading us through a season of repentance as a church. Repentance is simply this. It's where we go to God and we're honest with God and we say, God, I've been treasuring these things more than you. I've been looking to this and this. I've been doing this. Rather than trusting in you. So God, would you help me, strengthen me, empower me to find freedom from this? It's turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you're so much better. So in a moment, I want you to reflect on, maybe for you, it is that you've tamed his authority in your life there's an area of your life where you've tried to tame jesus and say you're not allowed in this area of my life maybe for you it's with regard to the mission he has over your life where you've reduced his mission over your life to this shallow thing and he wants to expand your the, the purpose for which you exist or maybe for you it's you've just made his love stingy you've forgotten what it cost him and you want to return to your first love We're going to take some time for repentance before we come forward. But here's what I want to say. There were some of you that 10 minutes ago I told you, you need reconciliation with God. That the reason you're here today may not be why you plan to come today. But the reason you're here today is because today, you're going to begin a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus. What does that look like? It looks like going to God, going before God, and recognizing you desperately need him. And realizing that Jesus loves you so much that he gave everything for you. And that his death on the cross, his resurrection counts for you. So that you can be set free. So that you can be forgiven. So you can be reconciled to God. And in a moment of trusting in Jesus, in believing, you turn to him and say, Jesus, help me to follow you with my life. I want to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In a moment of honesty, quiet moment, this is between you and God, I want to give you an opportunity to just put a physical act behind what's happening in your heart. If you would say, that's me, I need reconciliation with God. I need Jesus to come into my life. I want a relationship with him. With everybody else's heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip your hand up right now and hold it up? That's me. I need Jesus. Wonderful, all across the room. Amazing. That's me. I need relationship with God. I need to be reconciled to God. If that's you, just right there where you are, say something like this. Say, Jesus, today I trust in you. Jesus, today I believe you died for me. That you rose from the dead. And that your death counted for me. So that I could have peace. Now help me to follow you with my life. I turn from my own ways and I turn to you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mission. We thank you for your authority. Your authority is good. We declare in this place your authority is good and wise. And we as your children gladly surrender to you. Would you be pleased in our time of repentance? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcastwestpines.org. at westpines.org.